This is my own private domicile and I will not be harassed! Bitch! Gangsters, what's up guys? What's the grant to a motherfucker like me? Can you please remind me? Get the world by the tail! Fat broads and horse-faced lesbians. Cute as shit. Oh, 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 skip, skip, skip. If you don't chew big red, then f you. That's so horny. Could you imagine if I hit the old water pipe with that thing? Oh. Great cash, homie. Three, two, one, let's fuck! Everybody's got to hear the shit on W Balls, W Balls, W Balls. And hello, everybody. Hello, hello, hello. Can you dig it? I can. Welcome to another episode, a very special episode of the Do Not Listen to This Podcast. I am your host, Sam LaCrosse, and we're getting into an oldie but a goodie here. We are getting into one of my favorite posts that I have ever written for DontReadThisBlog.com. It has not been turned to a podcast because it was written in 2020, but I'd like to think that I... A lot of people say this all the time, like, I was ahead of the curve, like, I like this band or this rapper before you ever heard him, before he blew up, blah, blah, blah. So this is kind of like that, even though I, I'm not the douchebag that does that. I am the douchebag with does, that does that with things like this. So I thought that this, looking back on this, was pretty kind of cogent to what's going on now. I kind of, you know, wanted to go and see what was going on in terms of all of the stuff going on. This is this was written in August of 2020, the beginning of August 2020, end of July of 2020, when all the when all the stuff was happening, when all the stuff was going on. If you can remember, like I was I was talking to um a friend the other day and we were thinking and looking back and saying like, man, we've fucking been through a lot of shit recently. Like a lot of shit. And I think it can all be distilled down into not a, necessarily a moment, but a movement around a certain month, lo like months-long barrage of craziness and ideas and events and everything. And I thought that when I wrote this post, I did not want it to be a stump on the hill, like you know, fuck cancel culture type of no 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 type of shit. I wanted it to be something where, even though this post is not technically about cancer culture, even though I guess it can be linked to it in some ways, but I wanted it to be an intelligent argument, and I actually, for once in a while, just kind of patted myself on the back and basically said, you know, um, I think this is pretty good. I think this is pretty good. And even though I, I try not to stay out of the, like, I don't write about politics. I write about culture. I, I say that all the time. I write about culture. And the Breitbart Doctrine, if you don't know, Andrew Breitbart said in his now famous quote, politics is downstream from culture. So I guess it could be perceived as political in some ways. But I am concerned with this, and a lot of people are rightly concerned about this. And so I wanted to write about it in kind of a way that would both help me vent and hopefully you know, get people to realize how insane we are going down this one path. And I ended up with the article. And I thought, to my point, it's one of the best articles. It might be the single best article I've ever written for don'treadthisblog.com, which, in my opinion, is, you know, I got almost 
90 posts at this point. I mean, it's, it's, I mean, I almost have a hundred posts at this point. So it's, it's a pretty big deal when, you know, I can have, you know, a hundred ish, big, big time posts with, you know, a lot of content inside of it and everything and be say like, this is arguably the best one. And I do believe that it's a very, very good article and a good post and it's influenced a lot of the stuff I've written about it since then. So I wanted to get like pick a point where I can deliver it to you guys and it is coming almost two years after I wrote the article. So I thought now is as good of a time as ever. Let's get it out there. Let's see kind of what happens. And here we go. So, oh boy, I have been waiting for this one. Like I said, I had, I had waited a long time to write something about this. I have waited a long time to talk about this. And I am getting all, all giddy right now even talking about what I'm about to say. I had to take a plane back to college on the night of January 5th, 2020. My family had wanted to take a small mini vacation one last time before I moved on to my big boy job in the post-summer graduation of 2020. Assuming that nothing seismic was going to happen, I plugged in my headphones, turned on an episode of Call Her Daddy and a Flatbush Zombies album, not at the same time, don't you worry, and thought that the rest of the night was going to be pretty normal. Little did I know that when I touched down about two hours later, that Ricky Gervais had gotten out a gas pump at the Golden Globe Awards, sprayed it all over his constituents Raiders of the Lost Ark style, and set them all ablaze with a Rick Dalton-esque flamethrower of outrageously derogatory and profane insults. It's truly ironic that Leonardo DiCaprio was one of his biggest victims. It was all over the place. It was all over Twitter. My phone was blowing up. Could it be? I thought. And oh, it'd be. And it was better than I could have ever hoped for. Gervais had finally taken mainstream Hollywood's false sense of virtue and turned it against them. In the words of Gary Oldman's Jim Gordon, who miraculously escaped Tropical Storm Ricky, he's not the hero we deserved, but the hero we needed. It all started with Gervais explaining his blatant distaste for most everyone in the room. Whether he actually feels this way is to be disputed, but I'm leaning towards the side that he absolutely does. A roast this brutal usually has no friendly connotation. He then took his first direct shot saying that Felicity Huffman had made the license play of the limo that he had wrote in on. He compared our guy Joe Pesci to Baby Yoda. All was well. Then the first nuke dropped. Gervais name-dropped Ronan Farrow, the journalist who had played a major role in exposing Harvey Weinstein and simultaneously revealed that NBC, the network broadcasting the, Go the Golden Globes, by the way, had deliberately made an attempt to cover up the allegations due to his connections to their network. Quote, He's coming for you. He's coming for you. Gervais said, a sadistic smile painting his face. Gervais then proceeded to tell the audience to shut up while he went down the line and gave everyone in the audience their due. He put an ice pick in Jonathan Price by accusing him of being a pedophile. He turned the tables on Hollywood shaming by calling them all racist for not including enough minorities in the In Memoriam tribute. He refused to acknowledge those who died at all. He went off the top rope by making an Epstein didn't kill himself joke and then told the, them that he knew the audience took their own private jets to the ceremony, not the one filled with traffic young women. He gave Leonardo DiCaprio the people's elbow by comparing him to Prince Andrew due to his constant womanizing of women that are much younger than him. He called James Corden a fat pussy. He accused Judy Dench of licking her own genitals due to her participation in the atrocious cats. But perhaps the biggest blow of all was saved for Apple CEO Tim Cook. Gervais turned on the tech mogul, looked him straight in the face, and called him out for his company's horrific overseas labor practices while simultaneously launching, launching the morning show on Apple TV, a drama about, quote, doing the right thing. My jaw hit the floor. Quote, 
Well, you say you're woke, but the companies you work for, I mean, unbelievable. Amazon, Apple, Disney. If ISIS started a streaming service, you'd call your agent. End quote. Gervais concluded the diatribe by condemning any political or, quote, woke speeches. He proclaimed that every single person in the audience was in no position to lecture anyone on anything. He said that they knew nothing about the real world. He then told them to thank their agent, their God, and promptly fuck off. I seriously thought Gervais was going to make Tom Hanks burst into tears. Jonathan Price looked like he wanted to put a hit out on him. Meryl Streep looked horrified. So did Martin Scorsese and Robert De Niro, except for when Gervais made a short joke at his expense. I don't think Tim Cook wiped that look off his face for another two weeks. The only person that looked like he was genuinely having a good time was Adam Driver. And although Leo laughed a little bit about the Prince Andrew joke, gotta give it to the guy, at least he has a sense of humor. But to either Gervais' ignorance or non-ignorance, someone had beat him to the punch with his onslaught of woke culture. Dave Chappelle, about four and a half months earlier than that, released a comedy special on Netflix entitled Sticks and Stones. Chappelle's main topic throughout the special was cancel culture, the phenomenon going on where the mob targets people for past remarks and attempts to beat them into submission until they are out of the picture. They don't want you to apologize most of the time. No, that would be too civil. It happened to Eddie Murphy, George Carlin, Kevin Hart. The list goes on. Chappelle had had enough and was ready to defend his comedic honor. He criticized the Me Too movement as too draconian to enforce any real change to help women in America. He ripped the LGBTQ community for racist remarks towards the black community. He dragged Jesse Smollett through barbed wire. He commented on abortion and child support. He mocked the opioid crisis and compared killing a white heroin-addicted man to shooting deer for sport. Just say no, right? Pow, right in the Nancy Reagan. But the one that puts it all in perspective was without a doubt smack dab in the middle of the special. While talking about censorship while doing comedic writing, Chappelle recounted an incident where he was called in to discuss the use of the word faggot in his writing. Chappelle, confused, asked the woman who called him in why he couldn't use it. He used the N-word numerous times, which he viewed in the same regard as offensiveness. The woman retorted that he could not use the word because Chappelle himself was not gay. Chappelle then threw down the dunk. Quote, Well, Renee, I'm not an N-word either. You see, I tend to look at wokeness not as a state of mind, but as a blunt instrument. A tool to be wielded in times of feeling virtuously superior. And to make things abundantly clear, this is not a political argument, as I mentioned earlier. The liberal-leaning folks out there tend to get the brunt of the backlash, but right-leaning folks are just as guilty. Trust me, I'll get to the anti-mob later. This feeling of self-inflicted virtuosic superiority is a disease. It leads to a culture of bloat and entitlement. It kills free speech. It stifles dialogue. It is only used to assert dominance. It is never used to start genuine conversation. This disease has maneuvered its way into all forms of our culture through a well-blended cocktail of bullying, canceling, and intimidation. Quite simply, it causes us to treat each other like absolute dog shit. We cannot afford to treat each other like absolute dog shit. Our culture is too important to descend into the mire. We need to treat each other better, plain and simple. What's miraculous about this age and the era of hashtags like be kind, among others, is that we seem to be becoming more and more hostile towards each other by the day. It's incredibly bizarre. We can't seem to stand the sights or sounds of one another if we have opposing views for more than a few minutes. If history has taught us anything, it's that two cultures within one country cannot exist. Just ask 1860s America and the 1.7 million casualties that arose from that era. They tried that idea. I'd say from all metrics, it absolutely sucks. 
I don't think we should go there again. We have these things called machine guns and nuclear weapons and supersonic jets with missile launcher attachments and machine guns, just saying. No one has the high ground to degrade anyone based on their idea, to shame them into submission that they feel that they can never recover, to beat them to a pulp with replies and retweets so they never dare stick their head above the sand again. Wokeness is a problem that must be solved. Much like the beer virus, this disease can get to a point where, if left unchecked, the effects can be nothing short of cataclysmic. To dissect this epidemic of the mouth, we're going to examine it in three parts. Part one explains where wokeness comes from and why it is both flawed and a massive issue. Part two explains why no one has the right to be woke and to use it as a weapon against anyone. Part three goes into my preferred solution that, if widely adopted, a stretch I know, will believe, I believe will solve the problem. We just need to have like, the guts to come together and do it. Some people said that Ricky Gervais had some serious balls to put on his career on the chopping block at that award ceremony that fateful night. I wholeheartedly degree, disagree. That man had two motherfucking golden globes between his legs. So let's grab our balls, or ovaries, some paint, and get a move on. Part 1. Let's face it. Andy Astroy is a great place to start when talking about the origins of this virus. Astroy was a former writer for the Huffington Post and now hosts his own blog on Medium. He's been a journalist for some time. He's covered a lot of topics, most of them being political in nature. But Andy Astroy is also a buffoon, a clown, a cretin, a nincompoop. There's a reason he doesn't work for the Huffington Post. And that's saying something. Good on them. Andy Astroy is nothing more than a troll under the bridge, one built by his own virtue. You see, Astroy believes he's better than everyone. Probably smarter, too. He has all the answers. He knows more than you. Shut up and obey. Like most trolls under the internet bridge, Astroy does most of his potshotting on Twitter. He's one of those, I'm going to comment on everything anybody who opposes my political agenda does in an attempt to outrighteous him slash her guys. It's appalling. I feel sorry for him. The poor man doesn't own a shred of the real estate within his own mind. It's too busy being rented out by everyone. He pot shots. In December of 2017, while Astroy was still a writer for the Post, Senate Republicans passed the tax cut bill that had been planned by President Trump since he was b before he was in office. It was a massive, massive achievement to that side of the aisle. It was also a perfect target for Astroy to ass assert his quote-unquote intellectual dominance. While taking a picture out on the front lawn of the White House, Astroy took aim at the Senate Republicans. He probably sent out a couple of snarky tweets. He most definitely used the oldie but goodie look at these old white Republicans burn once or twice. It probably would have been pretty funny if you didn't know who Andy Astroy was and how awful he is. But he made one mistake, one that has haunted him ever since. He went after Senator Tim Scott. Tim Scott is a Republican senator from South Carolina. He was raised by a single mother who worked 16-hour days for him and his older brothers to get by. He then accepted a scholarship to play college football, graduating with a degree in political science. He proceeded to become a financial advisor and insurance agent before getting into politics in 1995, becoming a full-time senator for his home state in 2016. Tim Scott is also a black man. He's one of only three African Americans in the Senate, the only to serve in both houses of Congress, 
and the only current African-American senator in the Republican Party. He was a close advisor of President Trump and recently worked with him on both houses of Congress to establish Opportunity Zones, which provide investment into impoverished communities to create economic growth and jobs. I've never met the man, but Tim Scott seems to be a pretty awesome guy. Political affiliation aside, he always seems incredibly compassionate, intelligent, and poised. It makes sense. Most awesome guys are usually those things. It truly is a shame that Andy Astroy had to marginalize a good man on the basis of his skin color in order to achieve maximum Dragon Ball Z-style wokeness. When the Senate Republicans got together to take their picture that day, Tim Scott stood just next to President Trump's right as the president addressed the media. It was there that Astroy pounced from his now-deleted tweet, quote, What a shocker. There's one black person there, and sure enough, they have him standing right next to the mic like a manipulated prop. Way to go, at Senator Tim Scott. Hashtag Trump bill, hashtag tax scam bill, end quote. How corrupt of a soul must one have to degrade a person like that? To call him a, quote, manipulated prop. To base his competence and participation on a tax reform bill on the color of a person's skin. Don't worry. I'll tell you. The mob does. Anything to get their point across. Anything to be heard. Anything to feel like their virtue matters more than the person they're imposing it on. But Senator Tim Scott did not succumb to the outrage or the racism. He did what a good man does. He stayed compassionate, intelligent, and poised. But that didn't stop him from letting a stroy off the hook for allowing that pile of dog shit to fall carelessly out of his mouth. Quote, uh, probably because I helped write the bill for the past year, have multiple provisions included, got multiple senators on board over the past week, and have worked on tax reform my entire time in Congress. But if you'd rather just focus on my skin color, please feel free. End quote. How blessed are we that as a nation that we can have compassionate, intelligent, and poised people not succumb to dog shit falling out of their mouths? It points out the flaws in the mob's arguments. But unfortunately, people like Tim Scott get drowned out in the noise created by trolls such as Andy Astroy. It is this exact exchange that highlights the first major problem with woke culture. It's a blatant violation of the all four don'ts. And it's been a while, so let's refresh. The four don'ts are the four rules that I live my life by, and act as a filter for anyone that doesn't fit those four rules. Don't be fake, don't be ignorant, don't be a hypocrite, and don't be a victim. I believe that whoever tries to follow the four don'ts to their best of the ability will have a great shot at being a pretty decent person, or at least not to suck ass at being one. So it's pretty straightforward. The first don't forces you to be authentic and self-aware, and to see that in other people. The second don't allows you to meet people where they are, keep an open mind, and understand differences among people with differing opinions by learning to coexist with them. The third don't forces you to not go back on your word and maintain a level of trust within your relationships while also maintaining a level of personal integrity with yourself. The fourth don't forces you to automatically take control and responsibility over everything that was in your personal locus of, that is within your personal locus of control and to allow only your voice to be the voice that guides you through life. Whenever the four don'ts are threatened, a little buzzer goes off in the back of my head. I automatically know that something is up. Wokeness sets all four of those little buzzers off. The noise becomes deafening. So let's use the Andy Astroy, Tim Scott example to illustrate. Since the first don't is the hardest to keep a hold upon and the easiest one to spot, we can see this one right away. Andy Astroy was coming, trying to come off as someone who was self-aware, aka woke, by calling anyone to the right of his political leaning a racist for using Tim Scott as a quote, prop. He thought he was being authentic to the cause of the mob by calling out racism. 
but we see through these things, as illustrated in Scott's tweet. Astroy was completely unaware of what Tim Scott's role in the legislation was, and was completely inauthentic by using his own racist commentary towards him when he didn't conveniently fit his agenda. First don't, check. The second don't is similarly easy to spot in this instance. The second don't calls out willful ignorance. Accidents happen, so we don't condemn them if they are, indeed, truly accidents. But what Andy Astroy did was no accident. Andy Astroy made a sweeping generalization that no black person could support a Republican-backed piece of legislation. And that's absurdly inaccurate. People can think what they want and how they want, as long as they can justify their actions with valid reasoning. But according to mob affiliate Andy Astroy, black folks can only vote one way. That's willful ignorance at its finest, if you ask me. Second don't check. The third don't is a bit harder in this instance, but we can figure that one out too. After Astroy made his ludicrous statement, he issued a public apology to the Post, quote, There were many other ways I should have and could have made my point, he said. But that does not change the point itself. Astroy knew perfectly well what he meant when he said, or what he knew perfectly well, excuse me, what he meant to say. The tweet says just as much. Yet he tried to mask it by issuing a cheap tweet, he has over 70,000 in total, by the way, at the time of that writing in 2020, so he has more now, probably, in order to hide his true message. That's hypocrisy at its finest. Third don't, check. The fourth don't is definitely the most arbitrary in this case. Astroy tried to victimize Tim Scott, but he wasn't having it. But I want to focus on the back half of the description I described in my above paragraph. If Andy Astroy's voice was the only voice that guided him through the attempted butchering of Tim Scott, he probably wouldn't have said what he said. But remember, the mob run in, runs in packs. They all do. They do stuff like this all the time. Astroy is one of thousands that do this cheap type of pop-shotting, and all around similar issues. Groupthink is a motherfucker. It's always is more powerful than we think. No rational man would do this without coercion in one another area. Fourth don't, check. The second major reason that wokeness is a problem is because it flips due process on its head. Due process under the law is one of the cornerstones of the United States Constitution, arguably the most important document written in modern world history. Described in both the 5th and 14th Amendment, it reads, quote, No person shall be deprived of life, liberty, or property without proper due process of law, nor shall any, any state deprive any person of life, liberty, and property without due process of law. End quote. This might be a bit confusing to some. It might strike other United States Constitution nerds as anti-First Amendment. Well, if you were taking it directly in context, you'd be absolutely right. But that's not what I want to do. Everyone has the right to free speech and the vehicle in which to use it. However, what I have a problem with is the revoking of it in principle. Let me explain using, let me explain, excuse me, using what I believe to be the most commonly ignored part of due process and my favorite part, presumption of innocence, or more generally known as innocent until proven guilty. You see, on Twitter, it's easy to call someone out for when you think they're wrong. It's easy to blame them for problems that they may or may not have caused. It's easy to see them for what you want them to be. But you know what's not easy? You know what's a harder question? What if you're wrong? What if you're wrong? What if you can actually, what if you say actually does hurt someone? We've seen this happen to multiple people over the years. It hasn't been pretty. In some cases, it's destroyed lives. Look further than, no further than the examples of Brett Kavanaugh and Clarence Thomas. But now we're going to look at an example that hits a little closer to home, at least for me. Garyon Conley was a star cornerback for The Ohio State University when he declared for the 2017 NFL Draft. 
he was a stud and was projected to be a top-tier first-round pick around with, along with Mar- former Buckeye defensive backs Marshawn Lattimore, later taken 11th by the New Orleans Saints, and Malik Hooker, later taken 15th by the Indianapolis Colts. And Denzel Ward, who was also in the backfield with them, was taken 4th overall by my Cleveland Browns the next year. Conley, as far as my recollection goes, was projected to be picked up at 14th overall by the Philadelphia Eagles. However, two days before the NFL draft, Conley was, quite conveniently, accused of sexual assault by a woman in a hotel in downtown Cleveland. In the oddest sexual assault accusation I've ever heard, the woman accused Conley of randomly meeting the woman while walking into the hotel, inviting her back to his room, nonchalantly asking her to participate in a foursome, and then sexually assaulting her. Now, these things do happen. They need to be taken seriously. But a foursome? That's a little braggadocious, even for a dude that was supposed to be riding the biggest high of his life in 48 hours. Or so we thought. See, the NFL doesn't take too kindly to these things when they happen. Just ask Lyle Collins or Laramie Tunsil. Conley slipped 10 spots past his consensus selection to pick number 24, where he was drafted by the now Las Vegas Raiders. He was later proven innocent in a court of law. The woman has gone silent. She probably already got a ton of money from many other lawsuits she filed. A lot of you might be asking, what exactly is the big deal? Conley was still a first-round draft pick. He still made a shit ton of money. He still got drafted to a team, one that actually has better odds, at least in terms of draft order, of being a force the following season. But if I've learned one thing about sports, is that they're basically the epitome of throwing darts blindfolded. You have no fucking idea what's going to happen. It's an absolute shit shoot, especially in the draft. It's not the action. It's the principle behind the action. And remembering that the Oakland, now Las Vegas Raiders, can never be trusted. Ever. According to Forbes, Conley lost somewhere around $4,117,034. Over $4 million. Garyon Conley basically got robbed of a quarter of his potential paycheck for simply being in the wrong place at the wrong time. A mob member saw an opportunity to exploit someone, and she nailed it hook, line, and sinker. Garyon Conley was then punished by the NFL for being presumed guilty over being presumed innocent, in which he should have been. Oh, and one other thing. Those same Philadelphia Eagles would go on to win the Super Bowl about nine and a half months after that in one of the most memorable runs in modern sports history. That would have been a big deal. Probably a large incentive check attached to it as well. But Garyon Conley didn't get that chance. The mob made sure of it. Remember, this incident happened in 2017, right when the Me Too movement was gaining a ton of steam. Is it possible that the woman capitalized on outside circumstances to benefit her own? Sure it is. We can't prove it, but it's certainly a possibility. We saw it with Andy Estroy, who capitalized on a high anti-Republican sentiment to make a racist comment towards Senator Tim Scott. This is an issue that cannot be afforded, afforded to be ignored. When our integrity in the form of due process is at stake, we cannot afford to let it fall by the wayside. The third reason that wokeness is a problem is that it forces us into a constant state of division based on things that could be totally fabricated. As we've seen with T- Senator Tim Scott and Gary Ann Conley, their reputations took nosedives, some more temporary than others, fortunately for the senator, because of things that were completely false. These are dangerous grounds on which to walk. You can't hit what you can't see. When you can't see, you might hit the wrong thing by mistake and break it. I believe that's the kind of fire we're playing in when it comes to woke culture and all of its vices. So let's play the opposite game. Andy Astroy thought he was calling out racism when, in reality, he was spewing it for likes on a social media platform. 
that woman thought she was elevating the Me Too movement when, in reality, she diluted its message to get a cheap buck out of a young man on the cusp of achieving his dreams. We've seen this with other issues as well. Anarchists and opportunists who hijack the movement behind what I believe are a vast majority of good people behind the Black Lives Matter movement use it to burn, loot, and pillage. Tech entrepreneurs who vow to do things like, quote, connect the world, I'm talking to Mark Zuckerberg here, by blazing a general Tecumseh William Sherman-esque trail across the atmosphere of modern business, leaving hopeless devastation in their wake. Everyday young people say things like, quote, improve your mental health, but then blow up their phones so much with positivity that whenever the bubble bursts, they spew themselves all over the floor. I think a guy named Jesus Christ said something like, quote, forgive them, for they know not what they do. While I think the intentions of the core of the mob are malicious, I do know that all members of a mob are simply not awful people. Like I alluded to in the last paragraph, they might not be anarchists or opportunists or off-the-chain tech moguls or followers of mindless positivity. They are probably just good people who are caught up in the moment. We can all be this sometimes. And this is where the anti-mob comes in. Like I stated earlier, woke culture predominantly gets typecasted as something of the social justice warrior type that complains about half-percentage decreases on hedge funds yield and people from rural Iowa who support conservative political candidates. Not only is this completely false, it's also incredibly misleading to the threat that the anti-mob poses. The anti-mob is the same type of radical, but they just align themselves with the complete opposite stance of what the mob does. They still have the same violations of the four don'ts, they still have the same revocation of due process, and they still force incredible amounts of division. The reason why the anti-mob possesses a threat is primarily because of reason number three. Since the mob came into circulation first, the anti-mob was the one to hit back to defend their ground against the mob. However, they do not do these things with dialogue and conversation. That's too hard. So they stoop to their level and succumb to their tactics. A great example of this is the Colin Kaepernick kneeling for the National Anthem controversy. While you can think of Kaepernick what you will, it is important to look at the message and not just the messenger, especially when you're dealing something as contemptible with something as contemptible as police brutality. Kaepernick originally got the idea to kneel from a teammate and former Green Beret, Nate Boyer, who at the time was the team's long snapper. When Kaepernick first began to protest, he took a seat. However, when that was rightly called, called out, rightly so, surprisingly, by the media, Kaepernick and fellow teammate Eric Reed went to Boyer for a compromise. That compromise was to kneel. Kneeling, throughout all of my life as a mediocre high school athlete, was a sign of respect. When a player went down, you knelt. When we took a moment of contemplation before games, we knelt. And even though injuries don't compare in grand scope to religion, I think America does compare to it in one sense. America is an idea, one of the grandest of all time. America deserves respect. Colin Kaepernick's words can be discussed as anti-American, anti-cop, whatever, politely please, but I really don't think you can judge the act itself from the angle that comes specifically of malice. But the anti-mob did not see it that way. They refused to hear anyone who took that side of the argument. They proclaimed them as commies, traitors, and ungrateful citizens. They didn't give them a chance to talk. Some people even stopped watching football entirely. I'm a Browns fan. They've been similar to that of a pile of dog shit for most of the last 20 years. You're loyal to a horrific football team, but you're going to turn off the TV for some folks exercising their First Amendment rights? America? They didn't want to hear what they might not have wanted to hear. This did not make the situation better. In fact, it made the situation infinitely worse. What should have ended about four years ago is now continuous, continuing today. 
even being peddled as a cheap propaganda by some of the leaders within our nation. Just imagine a collaboration between these folks. Imagine what legacy they would leave. That we would show we could work together instead of tearing each other apart to death by dogma and ideology. Maybe then we would get something done. But to the mob and anti, that wouldn't be good. Their mission for division would not be accomplished. They would not win. But does anyone? Does anyone have the right to claim superiority? Does anyone get to sit atop the mountain strictly because of our virtue? The answer, of course, is no. But people still do it. It makes them feel good, or more than, or better than everyone else. But in reality, you're not. I'm not. No one is. So let's go over the title of part two for the answer. Part 2. We're all fucked. Let's stick to the NFL. Josh Allen was a widely touted quarterback prospect out of the small and insi largely insignificant University of Wyoming. He was athletic, big, and an absolute howitzer of an arm. It wasn't Pat Mahomes, but it was about as close as you can get. That athleticism, size, and howitzer propelled Josh Allen to the top of quarterback-needed teams' draft boards. He was raw, but he was a tempting prospect, and he's proven to be a tremendous pro. He was dripping with talent, if only they could refine it. Josh Allen was eventually taken by the Buffalo Bills at number 7 overall. The jury is still out on whether Allen will eventually come back down to earth like some people think he will be, but the results have been pretty promising. He stayed healthy, balled out, and has led the Bills to the playoffs. Pretty good. But Josh Allen got a Garyon Conley as surprise right before the draft as well. Some old tweets resurfaced, and they weren't pretty. The N-word was used three times. He said the phrase, quote, if it ain't white, it ain't right, twice. He used the hashtag LeBron sucks. All in all, a pretty awful sucker punch to wake up to. The woke mob who resurfaced the tweets, don't get it twisted, was quick to pounce. They devoured Josh Allen on social media threatening their teams with boycotts and anti-NFL segment if Allen were to be drafted, not unlike the kneelers that were to the anti-mob. Josh Allen apologized to what I and the non-mob folk believed to be sincere, but they didn't hear him. They drowned him out in the noise of their own moral superiority. But the thing is, it wasn't Josh Allen... It wasn't like Josh Allen sent those tweets a week before his incident. Not even a year. Not even five years. Josh Allen sent those tweets when he was around the age of 16, two years before he stepped foot on the campus of the University of Wyoming as a student-athlete. When Josh Allen was asked about these tweets pre-draft by ESPN commentator Stephen A. Smith, he really didn't have an eloquent answer to give. He said he was just, quote, young and dumb. That's all there was to it. But the mob didn't want that answer. It, quote, wasn't enough, and, quote, it wasn't an excuse. Thank God Josh Allen didn't lose as much money as Conley did. Thank God he's a quarterback. We'll circle back to Josh Allen a little later. The point that I'm trying to make here is that none of us have the right to be woke. None. At all, really. You have no right to impose your moral superiority on anyone, whatever the fuck that even means. Because the title of this section describes, we're all fucked. You're fucked, I'm fucked, 
Everyone is. Mark Manson wrote a whole book about it. Read it. You might learn something. The first reason that this proves true is that we're not omniscient. We can't be a fly on the wall to every single conversation of every person in life. We can't know everything about a person just off a of snap judgment, because that's impossible. It cannot be done. I'm pretty sure Big Tech is close, but it can't be done as of yet. The impossibility of this feat is the theme of the incredible album by Logic, Everybody. It's the most unique concept for an album I've ever heard in my life. Logic somehow gets Neil to... What? Oh, jeez, that was an awful sentence. And the most unique concept album concept for an album I've ever heard in my life, Logic somehow gets Neil deGrasse Tyson to act as God, and it's just amazing as it sounds, who tutors a man who was recently passed away on the meaning of life. That man, named Adam, is very cynical about the world. But God, slash Tyson, tells him that it's not that simple. He tells Adam the true meaning of his death. Adam is not a single human. He is every human. He's Hitler. He's Rosa Parks. He's the toothless guy on your street corner. He's the drug-addicted teenager that lives down your street. Adam is an unending life force, being reborn and killed over and over and over again until he lives every life that has been lived by everyone ever. Only when Adam becomes someone everyone can truly un only when Adam becomes everybody can he truly understand what life truly means. This is a staggering concept, one of incredible depth, and it articulates this point perfectly. The entire point of the Logic album was to get everyone to understand how hard it is to understand people, and how foolish our attempts at trying to do so are. You cannot know what's going on with everybody because you're not everybody. You can't be. It's impossible. So when we make these judgments off of who an entire person composes themselves to be, we're cheating our experiences of getting to know that other person. Maybe you're right. Maybe they are awful. But, wild concept here, maybe you're wrong. Maybe they're not. Maybe you just misjudged them. It's okay if you did, it really is. But wokeness kills this idea of everybody. It automatically appoints the accuser with some bullshit system of brownie points while putting it next to no effort whatsoever to get to what the truth actually is. There are only winners and losers, the above and below. There is no attempt to be everybody. The middle ground is refuted and dubbed an unholy land. Anyone who traverses it automatically is branded a traitor, with hell to pay. Sure, you might be woke, but you're not being real. At least you might not be. You could be, but you never know for sure, because you never have the balls to question yourself. Because you don't need to. Your virtuous superiority says you don't. There is no need to understand. You already know all there is to know. You are good, and this group is bad. There is no method to get better. You're already the best. Which leads us to our second point in our conclusion of the Josh Allen snafu. The right to improvement. When the Founding Fathers wrote the Declaration of Independence in July of 1776, there were the three rights inscribed at the top. Life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. The first two are pretty self-explanatory, but the third one is up for dissection. So let's do that dissecting. The pursuit of happiness is not the pursuit of being happy, according to the Founders. The pursuit of happiness can potentially be described in the best way by Ben Shapiro, the author of The Right Side of History. Shapiro, an American history doctrine enthusiast, interprets the meaning as, quote, the pursuit of purpose in our lives. I think this definition holds the most water, due to the document being based directly on the principles of philosophy by John Locke, who preached almost the exact same thing. Those three rights were and are considered unalienable, as they should be. These rights to be able to live, to have basic freedoms, and to have purpose are the foundations of everything that has come out of America that has been good. 
Our history proves as such. It was led to some awful things as well, but I would say the good outweighs the bad here. Just ask all the immigrants that move here and all the countries that envy us. Josh Allen did a bad thing. He wrote some bad stuff on a social network. He, I guess, proclaimed white supremacy. He should atone for those mistakes and apologize, which he did. Josh Allen is a good guy. He's never been in trouble with the law, has been an excellent teammate, and seems to be an overall good guy in terms of family and friends. But that wasn't enough for the mob. They wanted to bury Josh Allen. They wanted to destroy him. Their efforts before the 2018 NFL draft prove as much. Because at the end of the day, the mob doesn't believe in the pursuit of happiness. It doesn't fit their agenda. They don't believe people should pursue purpose. It interferes their desire to obtain power from others based on their dogma about what they believe a good person is. Let's ask a question. Would it be better if Josh Allen was actually was a racist? To the mob it would be. Look no further than Andy Destroy. Why? Because they'd be right and you'd be wrong. They'd have proven to you underlings that they get to make the rules. They're in control. They're the captain now. It fits the mob's desires that there were more awful people in the world, not less. That way, they'd always have a claim to the top of the mountain. They'd want awful people. They'd crave them. It makes them feel in control. When there is no villain, they make one. Senator Tim Scott, Gary Ann Conley, and Josh Allen are just a couple of examples, and there are many more out there. Most of them we haven't seen or heard, and that's a shame. Reality is not that simple. It cannot just be black and white. There's levels to this shit. It needs to have nuance. The mob and anti-mob want to get rid of it, where there are only good people and bad people and you have to pick a side. It's a good thing the world doesn't work that way. And that way is the third reason and the title of this section. We're all fucked. Every single one of us. The jury is out. And deep down, I think we all know it too. So let me explain. Our generation grew up with the biggest wealth of technological innovation ever seen. It was ubiquitous with us growing up. Cell phones, computers, Google, the internet, social media, and all the marvelous innovations of our generation were all secondhand to us. There's a reason why we're asked so much about how, we, how to work them. They're a part of identity, of who we are. And being that they're a part of our identity, they know us. Perhaps better than we know ourselves. Artificial intelligence and machine learning algorithms have become so advanced over the past few years that we can't even comprehend their accuracy to insights within our daily lives. And I'll give an example. About a month into the beer virus, one of my friends that was left on campus asked if he wanted to hang out. He was a friend from high school, one of the few whom I still kept in contact with. We hadn't hung out so much during our college years, and we just lived different lives. So I said, sure, and then he can come over to my, my apartment. When I asked to pitch in for alcohol, he said absolutely not and simply asked for what I wanted. Something brown, I told him. When my friend knocked on the door, I left my phone on the counter. If I can pride myself on one thing in this arena of technology, it's that I don't look at my phone when I'm one-on-one -on -one with somebody. I think it's disrespectful and rude. So when my friend came through, I left it face down, and I didn't touch it for another two hours. My friend whipped out a bottle of bourbon, and we poured and drank for those next two hours. It was really good, and really effective. We drunk, deep-talked about everything under the sun. It was awesome. When my friend was ready to leave, he told me to keep the bottle and went home. I then threw the bottle in my freezer, picked up the phone, plugged it into a charger by my bed, and passed out. When I woke up to work out the next morning, I took my phone with me to listen to music. While on rest, I opened up Instagram. 
I flipped through about three stories before I got to my first ad. It was for the exact same bottle, volume, and flavor of that bourbon I had drank last night. I hadn't Googled it. I said the name of the brand maybe two or three times. I didn't manually enter it into my device in any form or fashion, not by text or by word. But it's still new. Not only are our devices ubiquitous with our lives, but they're ubiquitous with us. They know everything about you. They know what flowers you want your boyfriend to buy you. They know what you eat for dinner every Friday night. They know when you sleep, how much you slept, and how well you slept. They know how you vote, what you read, and what you watch on TV. If you're on an Apple device, Tim Cook is probably staring at you through that with that same smile with Gervais left him standing at the Golden Globes with. It's still there. Oh, and tell him to fuck off while you're at it. But this, actually, is a good thing. It levels the playing field. It destroys wokeness and all its horrors. Why? Because it knows all the skeletons in your closet. Every single one. Every Google search you've ever done. Every tweet you've ever favorited, retweeted, or stared at for more than five seconds. Every Snapchat you've ever sent. Every text you've ever drafted. Every second of video clip or splice you've ever watched. Every single Facebook page and profile you've ever visited. Every kinky porn trend you've researched. Human beings aren't ubiquitous. Not even close. But technology is a lot closer than we can even comprehend. Whether you know it or not, all of your data on all of those things named in the previous paragraph is being stored somewhere in a faraway place in a giant data refrigerator called a server. That server is filled to the brim with the most valuable commodity on the face of this earth. Data. And there are millions of those servers. According to Bank of America and Bernard Marr, there are around 35 zettabytes of data in the entire world. You don't need to know with a specific metric, just know that it's an absolute assload of data. By 2025, that number is expected to quintuple to 175 zettabytes. If you string all of those ones and zeros out in a line, it's enough to make it from Earth to the moon more than five times and back. Think on your sins. Meditate on them. Stew in them. Because they're all there, whether you want to admit it or not. It just takes the wrong person at the wrong time to have it take a massive shit all over your life. Just ask Cambridge Analytica. They'll tell you. So no, you probably didn't send out a racist tweet. But you probably did lie through your teeth about your parents countless times. You've talked shit about everyone in your immediate social network repeatedly. You've bragged to your boys about how you porked a girl like Manuel Ferraro when you lost your virginity, when in reality you busted in 27 seconds, were soft half the time, and stuck in an unintentional orifice more than once. You probably shed as many tears as you did saliva the first time you gave head, and then told your girls about it in anguish over FaceTime. You probably broke the law by drinking and smoking illicit substances underage. You probably had someone take a video of you drinking and smoking those illicit substances and post it on Snapchat. You've ganged up on numerous people ruthlessly through group chats. You've cheated on an insurmountable amount of exams and homework assignments through mediums of texting and quizlets. And, believe it or not, you probably have gone through an insurmountable amount of unconscious biases about another ethnicity. But hey, at least you didn't send out a tweet. What a saint you are. Here's your gold star. But alas, there's hope for all of us awful people. We don't have to look much farther than the ruling class socialites that our friends Ricky and Dave roasted. Ever seen the cartoon Steamboat Willie before? The one that's now shown in front of new every Disney movie film ever created? The one where the 1920s Mickey Mouse is driving a boat in all of its cuteness? It's one of the inf most influential cartoons ever made. It changed the game. It can also be seen as racist. The Crows and Dumbo are a good example of that too. 
Walt Disney was a vicious anti-Semite. He hated Jewish people. The aforementioned Stephen A. Smith was suspended from ESPN for publicly admitting that he eats ass on Snoop Dogg's TV show. Michael Jordan was a bully and ended Muggsy Bogues' career by calling him a, quote, fucking midget. LeBron and his team can be seen laughing repeatedly at Kevin Hart's LGBTQ jokes and his special Seriously Funny. He and the Lakers then hosted Dave Chappelle, who also made those jokes. Don't worry, though, he profits off it now. His media company, Uninterrupted, sold hoodies for a whopping price of $125 each. At least he had the courtesy of donating $25 per Pride hoodie to charity. Let's keep going. Chris Brown beat the shit out of Rihanna. I know a lot of people, mostly girls, who still go to his concerts. A lot of people still play Michael Jackson and R. Kelly's music. President Obama threw immigrant children in cages. President Trump has done nothing to stop the trend. John F. Kennedy cheated on Jackie Kennedy like a whore. There's a document that's going to come out in 2027 that could show accusations of Martin Luther King Jr. encouraging and mocking a victim of who getting sexually assaulted right in front of him. Let's all hope it's not true. How about JFK's brother Ted? He just left a girl to die in a car after he drove drunk and flew it into a lake. He could have tried to save her. He chose to check into a hotel instead. Pharrell Williams claimed in an interview with Rick Rubin that we've been, quote, incredibly disrespectful to women. Says the guy who paraded the then 18-year-old Emily Ratajkowski around topless in a music video that glorified date rape. Cardi B drugged and robbed men for money to finance her rap career. Jay-Z, among others, sold crack to finance his. Literally every single rapper ever has talked about disrespecting women, doing drugs, beating the shit out of people, robbing people, killing people, fucking people, and a bunch of other heinous shit. In the words of one of the worst examples of said rappers, Future, nobody's safe. Nobody. We're all equally fucked in this simulation we all call life. So, yeah, don't think you're better than anyone. You're not. You're just as awful as the rest of us. Take pride in that. Relish it. It's the only way we'll come out alive. Part 3. And that's beautiful. So we're all terrible. We've all done awful things that we're not proud of. We've established that everyone is just as shitty as everyone else, so there cannot be an elevation of anyone. Mark Manson spells this out in The Uncomfortable Truth, which is, ultimate, which is his ultimate rebuttal to anyone telling him that their life is special compared to everyone else's. It's a lie people tell themselves in order to feel important, to feel like they're more meaningful for some reason. But they're not. They're just as small as everyone else. Quote, One day, you and everyone you love will die and beyond a small group of people for an extremely brief period of time. Little of what you say or do will ever matter. This is the uncomfortable truth of life, and everything you th think or do is but an elaborate, avoid elaborate avoidance of that. We are an inconsequential cosmic dust, bumping and milling about in a tiny blue speck. We imagine our importance. We invent our purpose. We are nothing. The bucket where you puke out all your hopes and dreams is to the left. Use it accordingly. How horrifying this is to realize, but how liberating it is to know, how true it is. When it comes down to it, we are a speck of slightly larger speck of speck on a largely slighter, slightly larger speck of dust in the bottom of the foot of the person that is the human race. We aren't even worthy of the shit that history steps in. Remember our friend Logic. The Population Bureau estimates that there have been 107 billion people that have ever lived. 
You were just one of that incredibly large number. You're a spot on the graph, a blip on the radar of the universe. Nothing. This is the key of how we defeat the mob. We need to come to terms with our smallness, our insignificance. Because when you look at it from that spectrum, from that reality, nothing you do or say ever really does matter, even the stuff that you think is awful right now. That is the first answer on how we destroy the mob. We need to come to terms with how awful and flawed we all are as people. That was the point of me going on for all those paragraphs in the last section. We are all doing things and have done things that we're not proud of. That was blatantly wrong, and we knew it. But we did it anyway. It doesn't matter your ethnicity, gender, net worth, occupation, or anything. We're all nothing. We see our nothingness. We need to see our nothingness. Cardi B and LeBron James are just as flawed as you and I. They just have extraordinary talents in a lot of areas. I hate Cardi B's music. I think she's trash. But that doesn't change the fact that she's good at some things. Okay, now I need the puke bucket. When you come to terms with our inherent awfulness and flaws, we come to realize how wonderful our race truly is. How we've fallen so far, yet have still gotten up. How we fucked up so bad, yet we still managed to be okay. We've climbed out of chaos, out of hell, into a new atmosphere that we can find solace in. This includes everyone, even the people you disagree with. You're just as bad as they are. Accept it. Don't beat them up for it. There's dirt on everyone, including you. And you know it. Stop bringing everyone down. Start looking for optimism. The second answer to how we defeat the mob is by practicing comparative value advantage, value economics, study of identity out now. <laughs> comparative value advantage, if you've read my book, is the idea of allowing someone to practice values that are different from your own should they not harm and or infringe upon anyone else's. It is key to a sustainable society. It avoids us slipping into dogma and tribalism. So one more story for you. In my junior year of college, I got a cold email from a recruiter who worked for a very notable nonprofit organization. I had no idea what I wanted to do with my life, so it was appealing as an alternative that I didn't think of. Oh, and the other thing. It was a golden ticket to anywhere I wanted to go after should I get in. Big tech, Harvard Business School, investment banking, management consulting, venture capital. All I would have to do was wave this nonprofit's magic wand and I would be into wherever my heart desired. But then I looked up the recruiter's LinkedIn profile. I was horrified by what I saw. Waxing philosophical about everything. Woke shaming everyone about their privilege and inherent advantages because of skin color or socioeconomic status. Proclaiming a self-hatred so far and wide that they could have probably heard him from the communities he was pretending to help. I showed my friend who I was living with at the time. He knew from the jump that this had the potential to turn into a disaster. He asked if it was still going to take the meeting. I said that I was but if he tried anything down that alley, I would light him up like a Christmas tree. I took the meeting, met with the guy, and sat down. The first five minutes went fine. It was actually pretty cordial. The guy told me about all the things that he was doing for the program and everything he hoped to accomplish. But then he pulled out a piece of paper. He set it flat along the table, took out a pen, and drew a line right down the middle of the long piece of paper. He then asked me, quote, So... What do you know about the walking line of white supremacy? End quote. I didn't know what to say. I think I managed to mutter an, um, I don't know. But it probably just came out as a Wookiee-ass series of groans and yells. With a Pleasure Island child smile painting his face, the man extended on his drawing. At, on one side, he wrote out the clan, Richard Spencer, and David Duke, among others. 
At the other end, he shockingly, not shockingly, wrote the organization that he worked for and was trying to recruit me towards. The recruiter then attempted to explain that if you didn't, again, not shockingly, directly support the organization, you were indirectly supporting the aids of white nationalism and supremacy in the suppression of the impoverished and minority communities. I'm surprised I even stayed conscious. I literally almost fainted. After I picked my jaw up off the floor, I asked the guy if we seriously thought if he seriously thought what he was saying was true. He dropped a bunch of mob buzzwords, Reaganomics, and patriarchy were a few of his favorites to attempt to dispel me. I retorted with this. That friend who I told you about earlier, his girlfriend of three years is black. At the time, she was volunteering at two mental health hotlines to stop depressed people from killing themselves. She raised money for minority mental health causes and wants to, wanted to open a practice for the same issue down the line. I asked the recruiter if he was bold enough to call her a supporter of this, quote, walking line of white supremacy. And of course, he had no answer. He babbled, dropped Reaganomics for about 16 more times, then tried to back out of the question. I didn't let him escape. I kept hammering him. Quickly, his woke shaming turned to woke anger. The Pleasure Island smile disappeared and turned into the donkey frown. He knew he had lost, but the mob doesn't go down without a fight. At least an irrational one. Eventually, we came to the end of the interview. He asked me in an exasperated tone if I even wanted to follow up. I said yes, and he was shocked. I shook his hand, left, vented to my dad about the experience, and made it to my class about a half an hour later. I was shell-shocked for the rest of the week. A lot of people, when their values are insulted and or come into contact with ones that so drastically conflict with theirs, automatically get defensive. They succumb to outrage. They let the mob win. But their biggest fear is you not bowing to them. You not shutting up and obeying. You sticking to your values while still respecting theirs. If you want to truly take their power from them, try holding your tongue, allowing them to feel what they feel, and then doing nothing. Let them destroy themselves. There is immense power in your refusal to stoop to their level. The third answer for how we defeat the mob is by forgiving, but not forgetting. We must be better to people. We must forgive ourselves for their others for their actions. We must come together in an attempt to see the good in all people, but we cannot forget. We should not hold grudges, but there must be a system of accountability held into place in order for all of us to move forward after such an incident occurs. Fool me once and all that. About a year after that fateful interview with a guy from the nonprofit, their national recruitment chair cold emailed me and asked me to speak personally. She said that I was one of their top recruits in the country, and she wanted to know if I was still interested. I had given feedback for the organization in an email survey, and I didn't hold back in the quote, what would you like to tell, would you like to tell us anything else section. But I took the call. Why? Because the lady seemed nice. She seemed like she was coming from a good place, so I decided to give her a chance. We had a very nice conversation and talked for about a half an hour. The conversation was focused on the message, not the messenger. There was no narcissism at all. There was just a quality proposition from a quality person, much different than the last time around. Oh, and about the last time around. It turns out that guy I interviewed was a radical Marxist. Oof. He was fired from the organization when they found out he had been blaming and brainwashing other students of the same nonsense. He now posts his angry rants to the establishment on social media and is planning to, quote, topple the hierarchy. I pity him. The poor guy will probably never be happy. The woman admitted the organization's fault for hiring the guy, but I showed them sympathy. Because it was a simple mistake. It probably doesn't happen all that much. 
but that doesn't mean that I forgot about it. Even though the woman's pitch the second time was much better and much more honest, I couldn't shake the feeling I had the first go-around. First impressions really do matter as much as everyone says they do, and that was perhaps the worst first impression I'd ever gotten in my life. I later emailed the woman thanks, but no thanks. I would be happy to give recommendations for other prospective members, but I just didn't see an alignment in our values at that time. She, being a reasonable person, understood. So yes, we should forgive people like the Hollywood ruling class. Andy Estroy, the woman who went after Gary on Conley, Josh Allen, all the people who went after Josh Allen, all of those people in our personal lives, and all of the notable figures I named. You should also forgive yourself. They, and you, deserve and need our forgiveness. We should honor that need. We should allow them to pursue happiness in their own ways. But we should not so easily forget their and your sins. We should always be aware of them, because when we forget them, real problems emerge. There are actual racists, anti-Semites, pedophiles, murderers, sex criminals, and a whole lot of other bad shit out there. Only by noticing repeated trends can we have a hope of fixing issues. Only with self and outside awareness can we snuff them out. Part 4. Spell out the damn sentence. Let's face it, we're all fucked, and that's beautiful. Some might think this post is harsh, that it's overly critical, that I'm a meanie internet blogger troll who needs to crawl back under his bridge like Andy Destroy and people like him. I find it hard to forgive Andy Destroy, he just keeps Andy Destroying, but I'm trying though. But I think something else. I think this post is incredibly optimistic. In my opinion, this is the only way we can have a prayer of some sort of unity. We have a lot of monumental things that are going to happen soon in our country. Some of them could change the landscape of our country and the world forever. I would prefer that we would go in the more positive than negative direction during that frame of time. Wokeness is an enemy to all. It discourages discourse, stirs division, and weaponizes anything and everything that it touches. It makes us hate one another for the sake of hating one another. It reeks of intolerance while exposing the chinks in our collective armor. But if we can learn to come to our term, terms with our own flaws, allow others to think differently, and forgive but not forget, I think we have a chance to beat it. We need to try. We need to strain. We need to work at it, together. We need to find a way to love each other again, or at least not hate one another. Coexisting would be nice. Let's try to get there first. Just hope that you don't unleash the fury of Ricky Gervais in the process. Okay, guys. So that is, that might be it. That might be the, uh, what I think is my proudest post, my best post. And now it is in podcast form. So hopefully you guys enjoyed that. Listen, a little, long, little long one today, but you know, I felt that it needed the topic and or needed the, uh, the time and the discussion and everything else like that. So I think that, you know, just think about these things again, you know, Think about what you're doing. Think about your actions. Think about how they affect people, everything else. And as always, guys, thank you for listening. Value Economics, Study of Identity, the two-time number one Amazon bestseller, out now on all platforms. Audiobook coming soon. But in the meantime, have a great day, guys. Have a great week ahead. Talk to you guys next week. Own the day. Open your mind. See you later. Thanks for listening. Hopping, stopping, hopping like a rabbit. When I take the Nina Ross, you know I got to have it. I lay back in the cut, retain myself. Think about the shit and I think it well. 
how can I mix my grip? And how should I make that nigga straight? 